Hello and welcome to Star Trek Sundays. Today we're going to be discussing the rules of acquisition. I'm Victoria and with me is my co-host T. Star Trek Sundays is a podcast through which we and our guest crew examine the philosophical themes presented in Star Trek every Sunday at 10 a.m. PST on Clubhouse. At the top of the room we have pinned our website StarTrekSundays.com. On the website, you'll find my captain's log, a brief summary of the show each week, as well as a guest blogs and our upcoming missions, which list future topics and the episodes covering the topics. Our YouTube channel and other social media channels are linked at the top of the website should you want to listen to some of the previous shows. Last week's show has just been put up on YouTube, so if you missed that, check it out. And you can find Star Trek Sundays on Pandora, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and from anywhere else you get your podcasts. We'll bring up speakers to the stage to discuss the shows after I put a few questions to T. Thank you, T, for curating a great selection for us to watch this week. The watch party on Discord yesterday was fun with more people this week participating on Discord and Clubhouse than we've had before. So what inspired the topic, rules of acquisition, and the episodes you suggested as the watch list for this week? Well, thanks, Victoria. You know, the rules of acquisition are a set of guidelines covering a wide range of possible scenarios that a Ferengi might encounter in their trading and what to do in those situations. Now, the Ferengi are a race that's ruthlessly profit-focused, making them the ultimate capitalists, and the rules of acquisition seem to inform their every move. It's uh, one of those really cool races that I enjoy a lot, and throughout several episodes, many of those rules of acquisition are listed. And the more you watch, the more there seem to be. But to suggest that that's all there is to the Ferengi would be a mistake. Because they also have a rich cultural history that can often parallel our own with regards to how the different sexes are treated. So it should be a lot of fun to dive into the Ferengi as a space-faring race and their galaxy-famous rules of acquisition. Uh, thank you, T. Let's start with the episode. We watched three episodes together yesterday. Let's start with the episode called Rules of Acquisition. Can you provide a summary of the episode to remind those who didn't get a chance to review it, what it was about? And then I have a few questions for you. Yes, definitely. The first episode, The Rules of Acquisition from Deep Space Nine, Season 2, Episode 7, first aired on the 6th of November, 1993. So in this episode, Grand Nagus Zek assigns Quark to initiate negotiations with a planet in the Gamma Quadrant. But Quark's new associate is not what he seems. I chose this episode because the rules of acquisition are constantly being put on display and paraded out as justifications for the actions of the Ferengi. So if you're keeping careful notes, you might use this episode as the go-to reference for what the actual numbered rules are. Yeah, I think we mentioned that uh, in the watch party too. So I'll just share a little bit about what I thought about the episode and, and then get to the question uh, for you and then we'll invite... Uh, invite everybody up. I loved the opening of this episode with the game of Tongo being played. Uh, first, what I liked was their cards looked like old viewfinder discs, which was a bit nostalgic for me. And I wondered if the writers get their ideas from stuff just lying around their homes. And second, I really enjoy playing games with friends and wondered if Star Trek had released some of those games. So maybe some of you can tell me that because uh, I would love to play Tongo, I think. So Grand Nagus Zek, 
played by Wallace Shawn, who was Vizzini, the Sicilian criminal bully and mastermind in The Princess Bride, was a wonderful treat, and it was perfect casting. I totally enjoyed that. And I have to admit, <laughs> I, I worried myself a bit that I sort of like the Ferengi. <laughs> Like Dax said, while their misogyny and greed is unpleasant, there's something interesting and, dare I say, entertaining about them. And as I said yesterday during the watch party, I think their, their dress style is really sharp. It's uh, awesome. So in this episode, we see their misogyny get in the way of their greed, which surprised me. Uh, maybe it shouldn't have, but uh, when Quark's assistant, Pell, now here's the spoiler alert, is revealed to be a female Ferengi, the shit hits the fan for everyone. I must say, though, that I loved Pell's protest when she tore her fake ears off in front of Zek to give them to him after he complimented her on them. <laughs> Poor Quark seemed to take an L here in a few ways. So my question to you, T, and to the crew when we bring them up is... Has there been, well, I've got a couple of questions, but we're going to start with, has there been a time in your life when your commitment to one of your values forced you into a, a situation where you had to compromise another value? Uh, oh, yeah, I can think of a couple times. Um, I, I think that when, when these types of things happen, it's one of those internal conflicts that we have to monologue about, a monologue about with ourselves, uh, you know, which value do I hold more dear? Um, anytime that, you know, I, I end up with ne in a negotiation with someone over a price, I, that happens to me. On, on one hand, I hold the value of the Ferengi. I want to maximize my profit. On the other hand, I, I want to make a good customer and I want to help people. There's a part of me that's empathetic to the part that these people may not have as much money as they you know as they would like and they're negotiating because that's the budget that they're genuinely on and i want to give them you know a better deal and so i see this this coming this sort of like one value making me compromise on another value coming up all the time it, it's one of those things where uh you know it's just it's unavoidable and i think that the rules of acquisition are very specifically in place to help guide you through those types of situations where one value is compromising on another but then i think you're going to end up running into problems even with that where the rules of acquisition are probably going to be in certain circumstances unclear or you know providing you with values that are contradictory yeah I'd, i've got more questions about rules and laws as we go through the episodes. I don't want to get too ahead of myself. Um, but the other question that I had about this first meeting of the Ferengi, uh, the rules of acquisition seem to be a rather hard and fast set of guidelines for ensuring all transactions are profitable. And they do seem to contradict each other at times, <laughs> which is what led me to this whole, like, when do you, which rule overtakes the other. Do you think humanity could develop a set of rules for governing all financial transactions that ensures fairness and or eliminates fraud? Yeah, I do. I think that the way that markets should work is when people bring their value to the markets, the market should define a set of rules for how 
transactions occur within that marketplace. And when those rules are broken, uh, the marketplace should self-correct. It should enforce those rules in such a way that you know, ideally they can't be broken. And so what we're ultimately talking about is sort of, you know, right now we don't have these systems as such or, or, in, or very well. An example of these types of systems might be a chargeback. When you have a, a credit card and it goes, you know, uh, some fraudulent loose, there's some fraudulent use. There's a rule in place where you can charge back that 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 uh, that payment and make sure that it didn't that it doesn't go through. These types of rules are important, and I think that we can do a better job of building out uh, marketplaces that enforce these rules programmatically through logic. And I think that we're trying to do that right now. There's a movement in crypto called DeFi, which stands for decentralized finance. And the idea is that you can literally just prop up a marketplace with these types of rules for ensuring fairness and people can bring their value to the marketplace. It's the wild, wild west right now. But I think that there is value in experimenting with these types of rule-based systems. Mm-hmm. Well, we will be talking a lot about rules as we go through this episode, for sure. Thank you for your answers to those questions. Uh, welcome to the stage, Joshua, Stu, and Sean. I am going to put this to you, Joshua. Has there been a time in your life when your commitment to one of your values forced you into a situation where you had to compromise another value? Yeah. Uh, the one that came to mind, actually, as you were talking, um, and thank you, by the way, for inviting me. This was when I was still a believer and relatively conservative in a lot of my positions. But I think the fact that I had to consider what was the higher ideal actually helped me to be more reasonable. Uh, and then, you know, I, I'm no longer a believer now, and I don't know to what extent it had that impact. I had a very close friend who was going through something very horrific and had just kind of survived it. And I don't want to really get into the specifics, so that's not really the point. And so my, my friend was, and still is, uh, a lesbian, and we're still friends now, even after my deconversion and all these years. But I, at the time, I held to a much more conservative position regarding homosexuality. I was young and, and you know, what have you. And it was a... Part of it involved uh, a relationship she had with another woman. She was grieving over some specifics of things that happened. And it's complicated. But instead of my deep-seated belief at the time that homosexuality was wrong, for whatever reason, my ideal of loving and accepting her as a human, or human, as the case may be, you know, won out. And so I bit my tongue and uh, accepted her. And ultimately, I'm so glad that I did uh, because that is a friendship that has lasted throughout a lot of changes. Well, we're not especially close. We do have some deep, meaningful conversations now. And I would not have that as an option if I had um, let my commitment to a difficult to defend religious ideal keep me from being the uh, metaphorical oasis that she needed at the time when I was, gosh, this was well over 20 years ago. Thank you, Joshua. Thank you for that very personal story. And um, well, I'm, 
I'm <laughs> I, I've got to give you the, the thumbs up for the the value that won out there. I think that uh, that's and, and just to be clear, I'm an atheist and I don't believe there's anything wrong with homosexuality at all now. Thank you for making that clear. Yeah, that's 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 a good story. Thank you for that. We have a few more people on stage, uh, Stu, Sean, and Mishka, and Kyle, and Christy. So the questions, we have two questions actually on the table here. One is, has there been a time in your life when your commitment to one of your values forced you into a situation where you had to compromise another value? And the other one is, do you think humanity could develop a set of rules for governing all financial transactions that ensures fairness and eliminates fraud? So Stu, um, thank you for being able to be here today. I know it's late for you. Wondering if you have any thoughts on the episode and uh, the questions we have on the table. I Thanks, um, Victoria. I haven't caught up with this week's round of episodes, but I do like to come to listen in share experience yeah i definitely say possibly in the last few years my exposure to the topic of transgenderism my views on uh, transgenderism were a bit more conservative i kind of had the idea that people were either just going through an existential crisis or going through some form of self-denial that they weren't happy with themselves and so they were trying to find another way to escape the life they're in, which is one of the more critical critics against um, transgenderism tend to use that argument. And I did get into a very, very heated argument with a friend of mine from the States. It was over text mostly. We did talk, but most of the argument was over text. I think we went for about three hours. I think she helped, uh, helped me realize that it was an ignorance of transgenderism because I thought at the time my ignorance extended that transgenderism were... People that identified with another gender and wanted a sex change. I thought that the two were always combined, that transgender people always wanted a sex change. And so given the fact that I had um, been born with a genetic disability, that means my sexual organs are compromised, uh, it kind of made me extremely jealous and angry. Uh, my kind of argument was, well, look, these people were born with functioning gonads and they're not happy with how they are and now they want to change them and I became very bitter about the idea because and and I think she raised it to me say look what you went through is not fair but you have to understand is that your circumstance isn't their circumstance and you don't know what these people are going through you don't know why they're making the decisions they're making you're using like one or two examples of people that have made the change and regretted it as enough evidence to show that it's wrong when she said there's plenty of people who've been through the change gone through the motions have come out much more relieved and, and feeling free than they felt before so so from that stage i had to accept the fact that there was probably some weight to what she was saying that i misunderstood transgenderism and it, it opened me up to do the right thing and talk to people so i had to um go and approach uh, some transgender people and from that, talk about their experience and realize that it was a lot more complicated than just some sort of existential crisis that they were going through. So it took me a while. It was a hard thing for me to change, but I did. You know, I'm still learning, but I think um, it was something that I had to change. Um, and yeah, that was one thing where I had to uh, change my belief for, for, for a strong for another one. Absolutely. Thanks. Well, Stu, thank you so much for um, sharing that. I think that that is something that a lot of people wouldn't share. Um, and, 
you being able to be vulnerable and show that sort of growth and consideration and talking about a friend who obviously had a lot of patience. Um, I just think that that's a, a really great story to share. So I appreciate you putting it out there today. We do have other people on stage. So I'll just put this to you, Sean. Uh, has there been a time in your life when your commitment to one of your values forced you into a situation where you had to compromise another value? Oh, that's a complicated question. Yeah, I would say yes. And probably along the same lines, my previous opinions about the LGBTQ plus lifestyle maybe years ago and some of the things I said to people that I wish I had not said looking back. Someone I met once in Sweden and my previous uh, worldview caused me to be a bit black or white in the world and not understand where people were coming from. And uh, as I have left that worldview, I think I am able to go forward. Possibly also at work, you know, I tried to always be pretty honest. And that was hard to do sometimes in a sales and marketing and engineering position. So there's a couple of things I've, I've done in my past, which I think were not, you know, they weren't, they weren't major, but they were like definitely pressure from upper management type things. I'm, I'm curious, does, does this, is this, these two questions, are they coming out of the episodes we watched yesterday, which by the way, was a lot of fun. So um, I'm just curious, did those episodes inspire you to ask these questions? Yeah, ab absolutely. Yeah, they did. Uh, and thank you for your response. The question of has there been a time in your life when your commitment to one of your values forced you into a situation where you had to compromise another was was uh, this this issue where Quark had to choose, you know, misogyny over greed, right? You know, in some way he compromised everything by it just sort of seemed to me that they couldn't work together. He couldn't get over his misogyny in order to keep this obviously great assistant, this business partner in Pell, uh, but he couldn't get over his misogyny in order to be able to move forward with doing business, which seemed to be, you know, he lost both a love and he lost business over it. So that's that's where I, I came up with the question. Sometimes they're just a little little random. It's It's what I... I see in the watch as I'm going through it, because a lot of the times I'm watching these episodes for the first time with this intentional watch. And uh, I'm working on a little article about that as well, because I find it really interesting to go into something new with the topic in mind. And, and then what I find is some of these episodes, you could go in and pick any number of, of topics and really find what you're looking for. So the um, episodes were written with many layers, that's for sure. So let's, I'm just looking at the time. Let's move on to the next episode. This is Star Trek Sundays on Clubhouse. Our regular show is Sunday at 10 a.m. PST. Today we're discussing the rules of acquisition. The next episode we watched at the watch party yesterday was The Maquis Part 1. T, can you provide a summary of this episode for us? Definitely. It was a great episode, too. The McKee, Part 1, Deep Space Nine, Season 2, Episode 20. Uh, first aired on the 24th of April in 1994. So in this episode, a Cardassian freighter explodes at Deep Space Nine. And the Cardassians blame the Federation colonists in the new demilitarized zone for the terrorism. Now, I chose this episode because, once again, the rules of acquisition play an interesting role here. 
as they're compared to a Vulcan bill, the Vulcan Bill of Rights, and said to be reassuring and logical, which I thought was an interesting take on the rules of acquisition. Yeah, I, I, I enjoyed that as well. So I thought this was a good and deep intro uh, into the Maquis. And um, I and I couldn't help but notice what you had set out, but we don't talk about these things before you suggest them. So it's funny um, coming out of it sometimes what we all see, but I couldn't help but note that the three sets of laws were mentioned in this episode, because we have the Ferengi Rules of Acquisition, the Vulcan Bill of Rights, and Starfleet's Federation Law. As, uh, as we briefly mentioned during the watch party, it seemed like these laws are believed by the writers and promoters to be designed to be fair for all, when in fact they give the makers of the law the advantage almost every time. Or at least that seems to be the case, um, either as a plot device or because it is simply the case when all rules are created and developed. I think this is amplified in a small scene between Odo and Kira regarding security because Odo insists that the ships being blown up and people being kidnapped wouldn't happen if he could have the security he wants, which is curfews and more deputies and more searches. And Kira points out that that would make the place just like it was under the Cardassians, to which Odo replies that things were safer then. And Kira retorts, unless you were a Bajoran. And Odo doesn't really have an answer to that. And I, I so I just kind of thought that was that was interesting because those were, you know, rules for the security, and yet they they benefited one group of people well over another. And all this is happening while Quark is trying to make a deal with this tricky Vulcan. <laughs> and I kept coming back to our theme and specifically rules and the fact that there seems to be a need for a standard of behavior but the line of too many rules or not a, enough rules is different for everybody and this really just got me thinking ab about my own life like the rules i have for myself and rules and jobs and all of that so t and what i'll put to the the stage as well is what is an example in your life when you struggled with either applying the rules to yourself or others or had a conflict with the number of rules either too many or too few and then I have another question too after we talk about that yeah um there's a there's definitely been times in my life when um I felt like the the lack of rules is a hindrance even here on clubhouse when we're discussing things um there can be a, a lack of order in which which promotes this idea that people can just speak over each other and nobody can hear what the other person is saying and no productive dialogue can occur on the other hand sometimes these rules lead to exactly the opposite when they're designed to do just that they allow people to talk on and on and on for five minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes straight. And they're, they get completely off topic and the rule is just go ahead and let them go. So it's one of those things where there's a balance to be had. So uh, when you sort of get to the gates of hell and, and you know, and Lucifer says, all right, for, for all eternity now, uh, blue cheese or ranch dressing, right? This seems like too few. This seems like we've got too few choices, but then uh, when people are faced with their, their, uh, their IRAs and their their 401ks and they've got all of these options of like 50 different 
uh, places to put their money, uh, they've got too many rules. It seems like there's some balance to be had. More is good, and it leads to freedom, but too many is bad. It leads to analysis paralysis. And I'm not sure where that that sweet spot lies, especially for me. It seems to me that uh, it's one of those things where we need to sort of balance that effectively, both within our own lives and in the society that we live in. Uh, thank you. Um, appreciate that. Um, I, I'm going to take this to the rest of the stage and then and then uh, regroup for my second um, my second question. Kyle, are you there? Yeah, I'm here. I'm okay, good, good. Uh, good to see you. So what what's an example in your life when you struggled with either applying the rules to yourself or others or had a conflict with the number of rules, either too many or too few? Probably in like 2015, 16, I started working in a law enforcement job and I know all of my far right Christian conservative values had to be removed entirely had to rethink everything because criminal justice system in America has nothing to do with the religious establishments that also say, Oh, this is wrong. And this is bad. Well, the law is very different. The actual enforced law and the amount of patience and compassion you need to deescalate situations and make friends where there used to be enemies, uh, isn't, isn't possible. Uh, with what I was doing prior, which was holding a yellow sign with Bible verses on it and saying, turn or burn, uh, blasting a megaphone and preaching the gospel everywhere. Very, very different. The actual law <laughs> uh, and the imagined law. So uh, there are, um, I don't know about the number of how many rules, if that's a problem, really. I, that doesn't, I think the quality of the rule is more important than just having a bunch of them. So, you know, like a succinct law that makes sense that actually reduces harm. So, and the other part of the question was, sorry, I forgot, Victoria. Oh, it, no, the, uh, the whole thing was just, what's an example in your life when you struggled with applying either applying the rules to yourself or others or had a conflict with the number, number of rules. But I, I really like what you shared about having, um, having to change what you, what you thought because of the, the difference between the, the real law and the imagined law. And so I just wonder, what, is that an example of how you struggled? And, and I, if you don't mind me asking, yeah. I'm, I'm wondering what helped you get through that struggle? What made you develop and be able to apply the, the real laws versus the imagined laws? The promise of rehabilitation and healing. Um, if I caught anybody, we would just treat them with respect. I, I even had to yell at some the Seattle Police Department <laughs> because they would come into the detention room with us and stand there and kind of puff their chest out or even try to start something. And I would say, Cal calm down. Everyone's being recorded, audio and video recording. It's okay. They're cooperating. 
right? The promise of rehabilitation, like that people heal. You know, crime isn't like a thing that, oh, you're done now that you've sinned, you're, you're destined for eternal punishment. It's more like a, it's more like a, someone is hurt and you can help them, <laughs> right? My whole mind had to change. It took many years. It took two years of struggle. So you, it, I like that you say, that, what was a time in your life? <laughs> it was a long time. It took a long time to completely undo the tangled knot of my, what I was thinking was I, I'm helping people by telling homosexuals that they are sinful and hell bound. No, no, no. Everything had to change. It was now I listen to them and now I learn from them. And now they're not evil. They're not wrong. They are full of love. And that is, you know, a complete 180. But it's that was me healing. I felt like deconstruction is a form of healing. So that's why, that's what made me continue is because of the promise of rehabilitation. Thank you so much for sharing that. That's a, a wonderful story. It, it, it's always sad when, when we think about ourselves before we healed and before we changed and maybe became more open to things. Um, and yet, I enjoy hearing stories of people changing because it gives me hope for other people that I might meet um, and I might disagree with, or they might have very rigid beliefs that, that are harmful to others. And um, yet I can hold out hope that, that they will change and be more embracing in the future. So thank you for sharing that story. Uh, all of you have shared great stories. T. Yeah. My girlfriend has one, one rule and that is uh, don't suck. And it feels like that that's a, a rule that that uh, embraces a lot of the things that you've been talking about, Kyle, about just not sucking. Right. And, and, and it was such a great share that you did there about the growth and, and learning that. And I just I respect that so much. So thank you for sharing. Yeah, thank you. Uh, so we have Christy and James on uh, stage. Uh, Christy. Do you have an example of a time in your life when you struggled with either applying the rules to yourself or others, or well, you had a conflict with the number of rules? <laughs> well, I think that um, I constantly have a conflict with the number of rules. <laughs> um, I, I am a business owner and a chiropractor, and um, there are a lot of rules, especially I happen to live in California. There are a lot of rules about how you're supposed to run your business, what you're allowed to do, what you're not allowed to do. Um, and it's, uh, yeah, it can be really frustrating um, because there's just so many things that I have to follow. And and sometimes it actually even compromises the care that I'm able to give, which is a reason why I do not accept insurance because insurance is an even further complication of the rules and regulations, essentially, um, that you are required to follow. And um, I know that um, taking insurance compromises my ability to really heal someone, so I don't do it. 
but I still have to follow all the other rules that are in place. And um, yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty frustrating, honestly. So I don't know if that's a, the kind of example you were asking for, but that's what I thought of when you asked that question. So I'm going to yield the mic. Oh, sure. No, I appreciate it. These questions are just put out as prompts, um, make us think a little bit more, make us examine the episodes. I think the, the, the writers of the episodes, at times they just wanted to put out something that was enjoyable. But as we've seen from a lot of the watch parties that we've done and the discussions we've had, there's a, a lot more to examine in here. I'm going to put the next question for this episode to T. The rules of acquisition are compared in this episode to the Vulcan Bill of Rights and described as logical and reassuring. Are Bills of Rights, or Bill of Rights, uh, something that can be completely logical? Or is there always going to be a need for some room for interpretation through an emotional lens? That's a tricky question. I want to say that they can be logical. I want to say that they can be programmatic. I want to say that you can define a function that you can give a specific input to, and you're always going to get a specific answer out of. But I don't think that's a reality. I think there's always going to be a need to interpret things compassionately and with uh, goodwill and, um, and fairness. And in order to ensure that we get the spirit of the law or the rule or whatever it is, the spirit in which it, the law or rule was made correct, we have to consider all circumstances. And anytime that you build a, a static set of rules, you do so necessarily without certain context in mind. There's always, there's an infinite amount of context and you can't possibly build that infinite amount of context into the rule. So I think that there's always going to be a need to interpret things through some at least semi-emotional lens, if not um, in, in the idea being that we need to apply the spirit of the rule in which the rule was made, not necessarily the letter of the law itself. Well, thank you for that. Um... The spirit of the rule is something that I used to preach when I worked at a yacht club and I haven't heard it in a few years. And it was something really, really important to us. And so often we would talk about the rules that were in place for members and staff and guests and, and, and we would focus on the spirit of it. And so I, I'm really happy that you said that because I, I wish I had thought about that yesterday as I was looking at the Ferengi rules of acquisition, because I'd like to look at the spirit of those rules. So I'm going to make a little, a little check mark next to this. Uh, so maybe in season two, we can talk about the spirit of the Ferengi rules, because I think that would be really interesting. So thank you for that. Uh, James, welcome to the stage. I haven't seen you in a while. Are you yeah. able to answer? answer either of these questions you know i had always seen my man myself as a man of principle you know a given word is a kept word and unfortunately i made some bad choices and i ended up in a place called prison i mean i it was rough i'm not gonna lie but i think what i found most difficult was 
the exploitation of other prisoners in front of my face, you know, where I couldn't do anything. It took me a long time for me to forgive myself for that. Because, you know, when you allow something bad to happen, you're just as culpable as the person doing it. But I had no choice. You know, for the first time in my life, I said to myself, you know what, you're not going to win this one. And, you know, that was soul crushing. But I guess, you know, c'est la vie, that's life. You live and you learn. Well, James, um, that that was completely on point. So I really appreciate that because that is a struggle. And it um, I can't imagine what that was like not being able to help somebody um, when they were mistreated. So I appreciate you um, sharing something so personal. Thank you. There were sound issues with Steve's contribution, so we had to cut that section. The next section is T responding to Steve. I think you made some really good points there, Steve. And to put a point on what you're saying with regards to vulgarity, rules, how people see us, I'd like to quote from one of my favorite authors, Randall Monroe, in his uh, amazing comic XKCD, in the uh, Great Dreams, uh, one the person was saying to somebody typing on the keyboard, you should be more careful with what you write. You never know when a future employer might read it. And the person typing says, when, when did we forget our dreams? And the guy says, what? And he replies, the infinite possibilities each day holds should stagger the mind. The sheer number of experiences I could have is uncountable, breathtaking. And I'm sitting here refreshing my inbox. We live trapped in loops, reliving a few days over and over, and we envision only a handful of paths laid out ahead of us. We see the same things each day. We respond the same way. We think the same thoughts, each day a slight variation on the last, every movement slowly, uh, smoothly following the gentle curves of societal norms. We act like if we just get through today, tomorrow our dreams will come back to us. And no, I don't have all the answers. I don't know how to jolt myself into seeing what each moment could become. But I do know one thing. The solution doesn't involve watering down my every little idea and creative impulse for the sake of some of someday easing my fit into a mold. It doesn't involve tempering my life to better fit someone's expectations. It doesn't involve constantly holding back for fear of shaking things up. This is very important, so I want to say it as clearly as I can. Fuck that shit. That was epic. That was beautiful, T. Respect, brother. Yeah. Beautiful. Oh, dude, I love your words. Uh, yeah, I, I needed to hear that as well. Thank you, T. That was that was great. Uh, I like the way your brain works. Uh, I think at this time, we will move on to the next episode. This is Star Trek Sundays on Clubhouse. Our regular show is Sunday at 10 a.m. PST. Today, we're discussing the rules of acquisition. The next episode that we watched was Acquisition. 
T, can you provide a summary of the episode? And then I'll have some questions for you and the crew. Definitely. Acquisition from the Enterprise, Season 1, Episode 19. So in this episode, a group of Ferengi thieves stun the Enterprise crew and begin looting the ship. Trip Tucker is the only one to stop them, but can he do this in his underwear? I chose this episode because the Ferengi take over the Enterprise, and once again the rules of acquisition are a force to be reckoned with, but this time we get a different view of them. And of Trip Tucker as well. <laughs> Thank you for that. Um, yeah, this this American hero in his underwear. I don't know. It just it 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 reminded me of like a a ninety or a nineteen eighties TV sitcom in some way. But um, this was my first viewing, the first episode I've watched of Enterprise, and I did really enjoy it. Um, I do like these kind of prequels because it always feels a little bit like um, fan fiction. And I know that sometimes fan fiction is better than the original, and sometimes it's not. And I've read a lot of stuff about Enterprise, but I am looking forward to digging into it. Um, and I just wanted to put it out there, too, because I forgot to say this earlier. On a side note, if anyone listening knows of any fan fiction for Pell, our Ferengi businesswoman, please let me know, because I would love to read it. So first, one of the things I noticed, which I thought was kind of funny, was uh, I was delighted to see lemon meringue pie on the Enterprise. It was just nice to know that our classics will endure. And during the watch party yesterday, we all noted that in this episode, there were fewer Ferengi rules of acquisition. I think close to like 100 fewer than in the later dated episodes, meaning that their rules developed over time. Certainly, I referred to too many rules in my comments about the McKee episode, but this one made me think about how groups refine their rules and standards over time, even over hundreds of years. Like the famous amendments to the Constitution of the USA, I've always found it perplexing that supporters of the Constitution and its amendments are often rigid about changing or developing it for modern times, despite the title of whatever rule they're enforcing, including the word amendment. So that always blew my mind. <laughs> Maybe we should just add rules and I, I don't know how that all works. There were some quirky bits in this episode, like the Frankie calling the humans aliens because they didn't know the name of the species yet. So that was kind of fun. And I enjoyed the bit where they tried to communicate with uh, Porthos, I think it's Porthos, the beagle. Uh, and I thought it would have been great if the pet was a talking parrot or a minor bird that kind of sounded like it was speaking in English. That, anyway, I, I crack myself up. But the convo that struck me the most, maybe, is uh, one between Archer and Krem. So Krem was the Ferengi who was the one that was told to do the, all the, the labor, the menial labor. And Archer says, what do you need all this for anyway? Because they were stealing all this random stuff. And uh, it says, you, have, you seem to already have plenty of technology. And Krem says, one can never have too much. The rules of acquisition say expand or die. And Archer says, rules of acquisition. And Krem responds, that's rule number 45. I've memorized all 173, including the most important one, a man is only worth the sum of his possessions. And Archer says, 
back on my home world, that kind of thinking almost destroyed our civilization. And Krem says, you should have managed your business better. And I just, oh, you know, obviously that's some sort of indictment on, on capitalism. And, you know, it was clearly written in current times. And we know that capitalism is out of control and affecting life on earth in a negative way. So I, so I have a couple of questions here, but my first one is uh, to T. It did make me wonder, so I'm going to ask you this. Will our acknowledgement of this fact motivate us to make changes to our own rules of acquisition in the coming years and decades so that the future humans can say that we were almost destroyed? Or do you think we'll just keep going on this path and be destroyed? Ooh, uh, what a great question, Victoria. Because as you know, I'm writing Horizon City, and in my book, we definitely took the latter path, uh, where our attempt at writing these rules of acquisition eventually leads to the destruction of us. And I think that that is sort of the path that we keep following. It's not one of these either or, it's because of, right? And so we're, we're, I think we're going to try. I think we're going to try and change the rules. I think we're going to try and make things better and inevitably fail in ways that we don't, don't foresee. We won't foresee that um, by, by, by loosening regulations, we will increase the speed of the economy. And that by increasing the speed of the economy will eventually lead to a, a boom, which will increase the rate of the economy to the point it can no longer be sustained. And then when the uh, rate of the economy can no longer be sustained, uh, a bust will occur. And, and that's the type of thinking that we are stuck in, is we think that we're doing something to benefit our economy and the eventuality of that is is bad. And I think that you've seen this over and over. In the 70s, economists really thought they had a, a grasp on things as they grew into the 80s and then when the when the when the economy collapsed, they didn't really understand what was going on. They had to change their models. They had to fundamentally go, okay, this shit's crap, it doesn't work at all. We need to figure out new models to figure out why this occurred. And they did. They did really well. And that's where we sort of came up with this boom, boom, bust model of what actually occurs. And so I think that we're going to see, you know, bigger booms and, and eventually bigger busts. And it's one of those things where if we don't get out of that cycle somehow, if we don't enter into the utopia of Star Trek, if we don't move away from that thinking, like uh, Archer suggested, then we will end up being like the Ferengi or we'll just simply never, never make it there. I think that the Ferengi are, are an anomaly in that they managed their business well. It just, I don't think it happens. Thank you. Um, thank you for that. I, I had another question, um, which I think what I'll do is I'll save that. Uh, I'll ask uh, Rachel this particular one, and then I'll ask you this other one, and we'll put it to the the room because I think that it might be fun for all of us to to answer this one together, perhaps. Um, but Rachel, uh, I I know that you you attended part of the watch party yesterday, didn't you? Were you there the whole time? Yeah, I made it just in time for all three episodes. Oh, yeah. oh, great, 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 great. So. In this one, 
the the question I had put out was, will our acknowledgement of the fact that we're, we're we're acquiring too much, will this motivate us to make changes to our own practices, our own rules of acquisition in the current times? Will it make those changes in the coming years and decades so that the future humans can say that we were almost destroyed or will we be destroyed? I don't know. That's that's a tough one. Um, I don't know. I feel like like on, on my bad days when I'm not that optimistic, um, I tend to think that we're going to destroy ourselves and we're not going to learn properly. But but at the same time, there is a large sector of society, um, especially I think with the younger generation growing up that just is not, that sees a lot of problems with our current society and they're actually, and they're wanting to change it. So I feel like there there is still hope, especially I feel like, like I said, with the younger generation coming up, totally just valuing, I think valuing things in a better way than previous generations may have and valuing things like like love and empathy, it seems like that is a trend I see with the younger generation. And it like, I think their optimis- optimism can spill over to to us who maybe are not as optimistic and can ha- find some hope. And, and just on a personal level, not that I can make such a big difference in the world, but like on a personal level, each of us can try to um, teach others or help others value things in a better light than they have been, I think. A lot of people tended to value just profit or greed was was rampant and or people valued materialistic things um, more than they valued like um, helping one another. So I think and I've seen it like I know Twitter maybe isn't the um, best place, but I've seen on Twitter like a lot of I follow a lot of people who have opened their own like little community gardens to help feed people or open their little their own little communities that take care of each other and I've seen a lot of and a lot of spaces on Twitter where that's that's going on so that gives me encouragement and hope that you know things might improve well thank you yeah I've just gotten back into Twitter I'm glad that you bring that up because I had avoided Twitter for a long time it seemed like a really negative space and even you made a little bit of a reference to that and yet through Star Trek Sundays I've connected with Star Trek Twitter if you will and it is the nicest Twitter of all. <laughs> it's so great. The people who love science fiction and Star Trek in particular are just lovely people who talk about great things and support each other. It's just, it's, it's lovely. So I'm, and I'm now actually able to say I enjoy Twitter uh, for the first time since I had my first Twitter, I should say. I have another question that I want to put to, I'll put to T and then uh, we'll go through starting at the top again. It's revealed in the episode, this particular one, that the number of rules of acquisition are significantly less than what we are used to, which is explained by the fact that the Enterprise series occurs well in the past. Do you, T, think humans will one day encounter aliens and in turn witness the co-evolution of their fundamental beliefs along with our own. I do, and it won't be in my lifetime. I, I do have hope that eventually we develop faster than light travel that isn't um, subject to the rules of relativistic travel, where we have time dilation and all those nasty effects to deal with. And we travel amongst the stars as a race. 
we become, you know, a, a spacefaring race. We we encounter aliens and we co-evolve. I just don't think it'll happen anytime in the next, I don't know, 10,000 years, maybe longer. It's going to take a lot of time for that technology to develop. And it, there's going to be a, a lot of, you know, dead people along the way. So it's one of those things where you have to look at the long now. What can we do today that will support the development of that in the future? These are the types of problems that, you know, if we start to recognize where we need to be 10,000 years from now, we can start to look at the how to solve these problems so that when we reach 10,000 years from now, those problems have been solved. And I think that's one of the most important things that we can do as a, as a spacefaring race is look beyond our own lifetimes to see the co-evolution of us along with the rest of the universe. I'm not sure about that. To be honest with you, I don't see mankind living for the next 500 years, 1,000 years. I mean, I would like to hope that one day we could all overcome our differences and work together as a collective. But then, you know, we stumble upon that factor of humanity, individual greed. So, I mean, I, I, I would like what you just said, T2, you know, to come into, into passing, but I lack belief, brother. I don't know. Well, I think you're right, Jim. I think there's a real danger that we are going to harm ourselves as a as a as a race, right? And there's there's something that we can do um, to prevent that. And, and that's another perspective. Five hundred years. What can we do now that's going to cause us to become extinct in five hundred years? What can we do to change it? And I think there's you know a lot of problems with the environment, and there's you know certainly problems with capitalism. There's problems with our politics. There's a lot of problems we can solve. There's a lot of problems that we can start to solve today if we choose to. And I think a lot of the times that, you know, as a, as a race, one of the biggest problems that we have is we, we don't, we don't attempt to solve those problems. Now we ignore them. Like, like James is saying, we're, we're going to continue. If we don't continue, if we don't, you know, uh, stop our greed from overcoming our need to survive, then our greed will consume us in the next 500 years. You're probably right. So I'm just hoping we don't. I'm hoping we can think beyond tomorrow and into 500 years and stop being morons about our situation. Uh, thank okay. you for your share, James. Um, yeah, Joshua, I did, I'm watching the, um, oh, cool. the cool. stage, so I did see that you unmiked. Yeah, um, no so please, uh, go ahead. I think um, I think James brought up a good point. Uh, I, I feel like I'm just doubling, uh, repeating to some degree, but I think that we forget that things that affect, have a global impact um, that change fundamentally uh, how we interface with the world, those types of uh, events and uh, you know impacts from outside ourselves can happen in an instant. You know, the, the moment we made a nuclear explosion work, that fundamentally changed the thought process or set into chain the, a drastic change in how we wage war on this planet and the considerations we have relevant to it. So if 
it is possible, and there's a lot of precedent to suggest that a single event can really have a, a chain effect. A, in the negative, I would also posit that a single event can have a chain reaction in the positive. I don't know if I just repeated myself or if I'm articulating, um, but I think the point is is that while it, I can see the pessimism, um, maybe I'm just the, uh, the ever optimist that will uh, collectively as a species pull our head out of our ass and, and uh, make some notable changes. Um, you know, I, I, I'm not sure. <laughs> that's just my optimism. That's my pre. Uh, that's my presupposition in terms of us as a race being able to figure it out. But who knows? I hope I'm proven right. Yeah, I'm. I'm optimistic about things as well. I. I do think that if I were to answer the question, um, will our acknowledgement of of this fact that we were talking about capitalism and stuff motivate us to make changes to our own rules of acquisitions in the coming years and decades so that future humans can say that we were almost destroyed or will we be destroyed if i were to get an answer that i would say that that we will be here in thousands of years and that we will talk about this almost destroyed i think that that it's possible that a lot of what we know will be destroyed but that humans won't go extinct and uh, we may go back in time a bit or back in technology and then come back even better right there have been dark periods in history where when we read history we think well how the hell did we get to these dark ages from enlightened ages where we knew so much and then we we got into dark ages i don't know that we're past dark ages again um in thought, but as well as just in people, it might be that our population decreases to several million, maybe at one point, not billions, who knows, I just don't know that we're going to go extinct. And and then how long it'll take to get to that, that technology, again, I don't know, because whoever's rebuilding the human race, will be able to rebuild with some of the technology that we've already done, or at least remnants of it that might inspire them. That's interesting. But I'm, I'm, optimistic as as well Joshua. So so what I wanted to put to everybody was this uh, idea of the humans encountering aliens and I've just looked at the time uh so before we dig into that because I think that that is going to be the fun way of looking at uh are we going to encounter aliens and in turn witness the co-evolution of their fundamental beliefs along with ours. We talked a little bit about culture last week too, and how a person diving into another culture affects that culture because whatever they bring is now there. So I'd like to talk about this. Before that though, I wanted to ask T to give us a bit of a preview of what's going on in the next couple of weeks for Star Trek Sundays. T, are you ready to give us a rundown of what's coming up? Yes, yes I am. Um, coming up on, uh, Let's see here. Uh, oh, right. October 30th. What's so funny with Star Trek IV, The Voyage Home? One of my favorite Star Trek movies. This thing's really funny. Um, it's the one about the whales and bringing home uh, a whale in order to a pair of whales in order to save the whales on Earth. Um, followed by the outrageous Akona, in which uh, Data summons a comedian on the holodeck to teach him comedy. 
and the trouble with tribbles everybody's favorite from the original episodes where the tribbles take over the enterprise by multiplying way too fast then on november the 6th we have resistance is futile part two the borg is coming back with the best of both worlds followed by scorpion and i borg then on the 13th we have peace through music with the q and a from star trek shorts which i'm super excited about if you have not seen star trek shorts you really should it's a great little bit of star trek probably the best and it's just a, a little pringle you just like 15, 12 minutes and you've got the whole thing right it's it's so much fun followed by innocence and uh lessons and then on the 20th of november we're doing the trouble with transporters with of course tubix one of my favorites in which tubix is merged in which uh tuvok is merged with neelix um followed by the realm of fear and second chances so after that we do have a break on this 27th uh, no show on that day. Happy Thanksgiving, everyone. But then on the, we will return for December the 4th with Spies and Their Lies, The Enterprise Incident, The Face of the Enemy, and Our Man Bashir. I love Bashir. Great. Thank you. So uh, we are going to move into our uh, popcorn style discussion now. And uh, anybody who wants to come up on stage, you're welcome to come up and chit chat. This is Star Trek Sundays and our regular show is on Sundays at 10 a.m. PST. Uh, I understand that there will be a few more rooms happening throughout the week now that are maybe science fiction related, maybe not, that lean towards philosophy, maybe in science fiction and Star Trek. We'll see what happens. But at this time, I just want to uh, put the question about aliens back on the table. So you don't have to have seen this episode to understand the question. I think that's what's groovy about this room. So it's revealed in the episode acquisition that the number of rules of acquisition are significantly less than what they used to be or it, it, <laughs> they're significantly less than what we are used to because we're uh watching star trek in the future future and so this uh is explained by the fact that enterprise series occurs well in the past so the question to everybody is do you think humans will one day encounter aliens and in turn witness the co-evolution of their fundamental beliefs along with our own so io did you have any thoughts i, I guess a few um the idea of like acquisition and rules that's like a very ferengi thing right um and uh it seems like um the federation has somehow bridged the gap between hey, we were once a capitalist society and now somehow it's socialist. So that's w one criticism where I just don't know because I would think all species would be imperial, but then again, there are planets that are like all water uh, or like a, a planet that's basically all one mineral, for example, like diamonds. So you have a planet that's basically just one big diamond waiting to be mined. So uh, it, does the universe actually need rules of acquisition? Uh, and to what extent did Star Trek maybe uh, try to add some diversity that might not be there? But, you know, in terms of the kind of civilizations and species that we think of, well, some people think that aliens will like music, others don't think so. 
they think aliens will not have music at all. So the, the diversity that we have here on Earth will definitely show up uh, in some species at probably a planetary level. Uh, so maybe a, a, a planet of economists, maybe it's like a planet where Amazon just took over. Because uh, as, a, as a fun fact, Amazon hires the most amount of PhD economists because that's how they always get the uh, best pricing. So high frequency trading, well, high frequency bidding. So anyways, so that's, that's a little bit, uh, maybe, maybe some comments uh, here and there. Thanks. Thank you, Io. I appreciate that. I Jared, have did you... Oh, go Sorry. ahead, James. Well, okay, let's say that we did encounter aliens how would we be able to live with them in the same ecosystem because i think we all assuming that they would breathe air and this is not necessarily the case so the, the premise you know thinking that we would meet them how would we sit down and negotiate with them in the same room yeah it might be difficult they might always need to have a you know, space suit Kind of like uh, what's his name, Valiant Thor. If you Google Valiant Thor UFO conspiracy, uh, there's such an individual who apparently had a suit on all the time. So, in terms of atm atmosphere, absolutely, the immune system of an extraterrestrial species, although it would not be primed for our planet, they would have repair mechanisms like all the amazing things that we see in each of the animals. So, there's worms that can repair themselves. Uh, elephants can't get this type of cancer because they have a few copies of a specific gene. Um, imagine a species that took all those, ch cherry picked all those great ideas and put it into one. Would we even be able to share the same space? No, because every exhalation is something on the order of 10,000 viruses, regardless of whether there's water droplets or whatnot. So just to put it into perspective, that's, that's what it means to interact with an extraterrestrial. You're already sharing the pool. So Io and James, you bring up some really good, um, uh, you make some really good points and I appreciate them. Um, although don't wreck the fun. <laughs> we do see in some of these episodes that um, some of the aliens have different breathing devices and such. And I think that's to, um, to counter some of these statements and claims and questions about this this sort of thing but let's say because they do talk about m-class planets being planets that are like earth let's say for the sake of the the discussion that the aliens do breathe the same way we do even if they have giant ears or noses or whatever would we then witness this co-evolution of their beliefs along with ours and i guess i mean we could do that do, do countries do that right rob scuttle i know you left and came back did you want to test your mic again it's been real fast the enterprise series is like those series like the what was it seasons two and three were all about the non-humanoid aliens and how they're having to interact with humans. And in fact, that's one of the reasons they were exterminating them is because they couldn't live with them. Oh dear. Okay. Well, I haven't seen all of it. So, or much of it. So that's, that's interesting. We'll have to review that. Yeah. yeah they just Add look it to at the list. Conduit. They just look at us as, Hey, you're just a space where I can occupy so that I can survive. You're not that important. You're like a million years behind us. Oh, Rachel, go ahead. Okay, well, I was just going to say, is anybody of the opinion that we've already encountered 
aliens? Because, like, recently, with the whole UAP phenomenon and the government finally revealing that they have been investigating this, these sightings that other people in, even, like, their own pilots or whatever in, in the in the in uh, the military have reported um, encounters with basically UAPs or whatever. So does is it anybody believing those reports or do you I believe think if I have to make a bet 99% for $100,000. That's kind of my confidence quantified. I believe it's probable. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I believe it. Highly, so highly. um yeah, I figured everybody would, and I believe it now that because no. Rachel, you sounded like you were on a spaceship. Oh. <laughs> so no, no, I'm I'm ninety nine percent chance we have not. The UAPs are going to be man made. Oh, okay. Ah. Well, thank okay. you, Deep State. Thank you, Rap Scuttle from the Deep State. Yo, shout out to the Deep State. <laughs> uh, so this will be one of those uh, after hours debates, hey, T. Uh, I could say yeah, more, but that's classified by the Federation. Sorry. <laughs> I hope. Um, yeah, it was Rab Scuttle who said that um, uh, that he he thought that they were man-made. And, uh, and I don't know whether he's being serious. He sounded serious, but I also know he's a little bit of a, a joker as well. So, so Joshua, Sean, Kyle, Christy, I haven't heard from you guys in a while. What do you think about all this? How about you, Joshua? What do you got to yeah, share? Yeah, I, I think because I, I, <laughs> my excitement for for a couple of personal incidents, I was going to ask the question that Sean was an answering. But to the second question, uh, to bring it back around, assuming we survive, and assuming we interact with another culture that is beyond this planet, uh, I, I don't think I don't know see how we couldn't co-evolve. We have different cultures just within the species known as humans uh, that we've already influenced each other for good or for ill. So anytime that we have any kind of social interaction, it's I don't see how we could avoid impacting their culture or vice versa just by virtue of the contact with another race. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. I mean, you just ended with another race, but I'm trying, I'm thinking of the species on I'm Earth, sorry. Uh, if I, if I said race, I, maybe I'm thinking too D and D. Oh, oh no, no, but, but the, but we talk about race as well. Like I had put it out there a little while ago and maybe that was the, what put it in your head was, you know, we do our, our rules for our own countries co-evolve with other countries and other governments. And while we're the same species, we have different cultures and different beliefs, but they do co-evolve for sure. But then when, when you were talking, I was thinking about species and how the different species on earth influence each other. And I think obviously we know we're conscious of our influence where others might not be. Maybe I'm going way off onto a, another tangent here, that but it is an no, interesting actually, thing to think about. I'm sorry to interrupt you, Victoria. No, that no, absolutely please, speaks yeah. to my point uh, because I didn't really go too deep because I was just speaking in terms of cultures that we can more clearly understand but absolutely dolphins interact with humans and uh there are pigeons now that rely on people feeding them in the park that they've adapted to their interaction with us so you're, i don't think you're at all far off i think that's oh don't get me started on the pigeons they're all around me right now there's like <laughs> 35 
bins in my area, and now I feel obligated throughout the winter, and I'm like, how much is this costing me? It's it's gone from like one dollar <laughs> two days to like four or five dollars a day now in seeds just to maintain this. Uh, yeah, a coffee habit would be cheaper, right, Ayo? Yeah. T, what are your thoughts on all of this? Well, the question got asked about um, how would we communicate with these alien races? And I think it's important to, to look at that because the, the answer would be math, math being the universal language. So I, I think long before we actually see or encounter these you know, alien races up front, we will, we will radio them. We will, you know, subspace them as, as it were. We'll, we'll have contact with them and we'll establish communication and protocols and boundaries and all of that. And I think it's those protocols that it will eventually allow for, you know, the, these, op these opportunities to interact with alien races. But, you know, we, we got a bunch of problems to solve before that, you know, before we even talk about, you know, how we have to talk about how we're going to get there because, you know, relativistic travel just isn't going to get us to where we need to be with regards to this. Mm -hmm. It's funny that we're thinking about all of this hundreds of years in advance of it happening, perhaps, right? And and then I, I think, like, was that what da Vinci was doing? Because he was thinking about things that only came about three, 400 years after he thought about them. I think we do have to think about these things in order to get the ideas out there. And then somebody says, oh, I think I know how to make a part for that. Or I think I know how to get closer to it each time. But it does seem kind of funny to be doing that. So that was just uh, my thought on it. Right there. I think you, you pointed out that da Vinci was doing this. I think that our best and brightest minds are, were quite literally way ahead of their time. And I think that you see that with Star Trek. I think that you see, uh, you know, Picard picking up a tablet long before there were iPhones and, and iPads and stuff like that. I think that you see, you know, uh, a lot of these, uh, these, you know, like a lightsaber, you know, long before there were, you know, lasers and, and, and all these cool cutting technologies. I think that uh, you have to, Arthur C. Clarke envisioned satellite communications, uh, sorry, communication satellites long before we had communication satellites, literal things in orbit, machines in orbit that helped transmit the signals around the world in order to come the curvature of the earth. And uh, now that's exactly what we have. And so I think that bright, that our best and brightest minds do need to think 400, 500, 1,000, 10,000 years ahead of their time. Uh, if I may, uh, actually, there's an individual by the name of Jamie Metzel. Metzel. Uh, uh, he did a uh, episode on Joe Rogan's podcast, and he talked about how scientists are great at thinking about four or five years because that's usually on the scale of their graduate degrees or projects. <clears throat> but if you ask scientists, where do you see your work in 70 years, very few of them had even conceptions of what that meant. And so I think there's a movement in trying to get people in the West a little bit more excited about science technology. And there might be some underlying um, issues with filtering of, uh, for example, TikTok. 
how TikTok filters in one country versus another affects the youth. So if you don't get exposed to Star Trek as a young person because you keep getting stupid bottle challenges, uh, it's hard to um, foster and help nurture a sense of, uh, you know, boldly going. And I say this as someone who uh, had cancer now, uh, made it through the cancer, and now I'm trying to give it back uh, or pay it forward, as it were, uh, by working on something that resembles a tricorder, something that can very quickly tell you whether you have a certain pathogen or not. And it was inspired by science fiction, and quite literally to the folks in the lab, I said, hey, well, what if it works? You know, who cares that it came from Star Trek? You know, that's a great, that's great. That's the best kind of free that we can get. The one that comes from science fiction, so people have already been thinking about it in either the, uh, you know, uh, other works or theoretical papers, because oftentimes a physicist will come up with an idea and they'll just write out the theoretical framework and then somebody else years later will come along and do something experimental. So it's a very exciting time and uh, as you can see with my uh, picture here, I deep faked myself as Riker uh, because uh, hell yeah, Star Trek is pretty awesome and he has the best maneuver in all of Star Trek, the, the Riker sit down chair maneuver, right? Yes. <laughs> well, uh, well, thank you for that um that story and yes, it, the riker over the the leg over the chair is classic. <laughs> thank you. Yeah, the um the the I love the um the the riker maneuver, but I I just think that it it's such a um it's such a important part that we recognize that we do get to stand on the shoulders of the giants that came before us. Every bit of my work stands on the shoulders of the giants that, that influenced me in both writing fiction, in my work in, you know, in, in uh, programming, in, in everything, you know, and it is by far and away the most exciting time to be alive we are the best generation and we need to utilize that so that the next generation in turn becomes the best generation. Well, the, uh, those were, those were great. Um, I think that that's probably a really good note to end the room on. What do you think T? Yeah, I absolutely agree. It was a great room too, guys. Thank you. Yeah, this was, they were really good answers to some questions. And I really appreciate everybody taking the questions seriously. Well, I, I don't need anybody to answer the questions specifically if, if ever there's a, a, a question that comes out of the, the episode, whether you've watched it at the watch party or watched it on your own, uh, let me know. You can either send it to me in a back channel message or tweet it out to us or whatever. Um, but I come up with the questions that, that I see having gone into the episodes with the theme in mind. So for example, next week, the theme is what's so funny. I'm going to be going in looking for humor. There might be other messages in some of these episodes and the movie, and perhaps we'll revisit those. Um, but I'm going to be looking for the humor and that's what we're going to be talking about. But if you're watching them and something comes up for you and you want me to put a question to the to the crew, uh, let me know. Uh, I think that would be kind of fun. I am just going to thank everybody for all of their contributions. And hopefully you'll come back next Sunday at 10am and check out the club. 
And we've got all of our rooms scheduled until the end of this season. And we're going to have some random rooms uh, through the week. And if you want to listen to the previous podcast, you can check out our website at the top of the room here, StarTrekSundays.com. And that has all of the social media there as well. And just a note, we didn't talk about this. So I'm just going to throw it out at the end. Uh, I'm an artist and I've made some art for our cover art for our podcast, but I've also made some art uh, that we've put on t-shirts. So there's only a couple of them now, but if you go to the website and you go to our trading posts, you'll be able to see my original art for Star Trek Sundays. And one is quite funny, I think, and I'd love your feedback because I've taken Quark and I've put him on the cover of Quaker Oats and called it Quarker quick stoats instead. <laughs> so I'm hoping that you guys can follow along and enjoy my my art progress as well. So I've got a couple of other things in mind. And, uh, and if you've got some ideas, I love punny ideas. So let me know. But uh, thank you all for coming. I totally appreciate your contributions. And hopefully we'll see you next week. Yeah, definitely. Go to StarTrekSundays.com and buy a, a Quarker Arts Oats t-shirt because they are hilarious. And I would love to see your pictures and get those posted and pinned at the top here if you want to send them in. Hope to see you in the hallways and great room, everyone. And see you next week.